Hello, and welcome back to Playability, where we hold conversations at the crossroads of gameplay and accessibility. I'm your host, Lauren Woolsey, and I'm here today with Jonathan Chaffer, the designer of several games, and the one that we're going to focus on today is Filler by Green Couch Games. Hi. Hi there. So for Filler, um, which is a beautiful filler game about filling pastries, walk me through the development process. Yeah, sure. So Filler is an unusual kind of uh, development for me. I normally, um, people ask if designers work theme first or mechanism first, and it's never really one or the other, but I tend toward the theme first side of that divide. Specifically, I end up with a title that tickles my fancy in some way, and I tend to think what would that theme feel like? What kinds of mechanisms would work well with that? And filler was really the opposite in that I had a mechanism that I wanted to play with and distill. There is a, a game called Copycat from Freedom and Freeze, which is a funny game to begin with because it's a game that is cobbled together from a bunch of other well-known games. It takes elements <laughs> from Dominion and from Puerto Rico and from Agricola and mashes those all together to form a game that I quite enjoy. But it has one element that, as far as I know, was not copied from anything else, which was this idea that turn order is very important, and you have to sacrifice cards from your hand in order to decide which order to play in. So I was playing around with that idea, and that settled in with the theme of, of being bakers, at a bakery and where the time that you arrive at work um, dictated how many options you had in front of you for what you were going to make. So um, the core tension in the game is whether you can afford to sacrifice a very good card from your hand in order to have an early turn order, but in doing so, you lose ingredients that you're going to need in order to make recipes. Yeah, and that tension between those two always makes for a good design space is this card can do really good things here or really good things here, and you have to use it in one place or the other. Yeah, I tend to think about that core conflict or, or what is the main decision players are going to have to make over and over in a game, especially since most of the games I design are pretty small. They don't have a huge number of mechanisms interacting. So the one or two that are there need to be really solid and easy to immediately see, you know, why is this an interesting decision to make? Yeah, absolutely. So players start with some ingredients in hand. And what are the primary goals of the players as they go through their days of baking? Well, thematically, um, what you're trying to do is make a lot of money selling your pastries. You're trying to win awards, and you're trying to get great customer reviews. Mechanically, that means you're collecting some points. <laughs> so it's like a deck builder. You are, um, you're going to be collecting cards that have points on them. And much like games that players are often familiar with, like Dominion, you're trying to end up with a deck that has lots of points in it. But in so doing, the cards that are worth a lot of points tend not to be the most useful cards in the game. So that's a, that is a trade-off you're making. This is a hand-building game, uh, which is distinguished from deck-building games in that you never shuffle. 
So as you acquire cards, they go straight into your hand. You can use them right away. And occasionally you're going to take turns to restock your pantry and collect all your cards again. Mm, Right. And so in that turn where you don't get to do anything, you don't get to fill a pastry, you don't get to get a new card. What do players get as a kind of consolation for that? Yeah, in some iterations of the game, that was all there was. Uh, You occasionally had to take a turn to restock your pantry, and it was a necessary evil, and the main point was minimizing the number of turns where you do that. And that worked fine. There was nothing broken with it, but it was a disappointing turn. And it's supposed to be kind of disappointing, but it was a little too much so for the feel of the game. And so to add a little bit of interest there... Whenever you take that restock turn, you also are allowed to reserve a card. You get to take a card that's on display and put it back on top of the deck so you can have a little moment of, well, if I can't have it, you can't have it either. (laughs) At least players get some kind of positive um, effect from that or positive feeling, I suppose. Exactly. Or or at least are sure that their next turn is going to be great. Right, exactly. Now, the goal of the game is to get the most points, and we've talked about most of the big picture mechanics. So before we get too far further, what does accessibility mean to you? Well, this is a big question. I think the short answer that I'm going to, I'm going to try to give you some clickbait by doing (laughs) something controversial here. I think my short answer is accessibility is impossible, (laughs) by which I mean, I think that accessibility in games and otherwise, is inherently a trade-off. And my day job is web development. And so I am working with accessibility in that realm all the time. And we are often, um, we have decisions that are put in front of us. In order to make something accessible to someone who is using a screen reader to interact with a website, you have to You have to do some work to set that up correctly. And there's a platitude that has some truth to it that says that if you make things accessible, it helps everyone, not just the person who has the direct need for that win, but... Right, the curb cut effect. So not just the person who... Right, exactly. And there's some truth to that, but that's not all of the truth. Uh, the, The whole truth is that you're always giving something up. And it's not always clear what that is, but if you think about it, you can, you can find it. So let's take something like in a board game, you have something like you have uh, physical pieces that could be cubes that are different colors. And in order to make this more accessible to a colorblind audience, you want to make those pieces all have different shapes. And that is, generally speaking, going to help or solve that problem for the colorblind audience. Mm-hmm. But there are trade-offs. So if if the game requires you to pull those blindly out of a bag, you can't do that anymore because right. they have different shapes. That's an obvious thing. But even if you don't have that problem, there is a trade-off in that that probably costs more money. And when a game costs more money to make, it's going to be sold for more money and actually, that's an accessibility problem, too, oh, because absolutely. all of a sudden there's financial accessibility. So usually, whenever you make something more accessible to an audience, you are inherently making it less accessible to a different audience. Now, in a lot of cases, it is an obvious decision because 
the win for one is so much more than whatever detriment it would cause to someone else. But it's not never something that should be taken lightly, I think. Yeah, it's it's the kind of thing where you want to think about the consequences. And for games, it's not always going to be higher costs, but there there will always be, as you said, some kind of trade-off. And you have to make sure that you don't forget about what those choices are going to do. Yeah. And the, and the other difficulty is that games are kind of inherently about inaccessibility in that you don't want the objective to be easy. <laughs> so <laughs> you are, when you're designing a game, you are putting obstacles in the player's path. And that is going to be inaccessible to someone. My first published game was called Stroop, which is a speed game about the Stroop effect, which is a psychological barrier that makes different parts of your brain fight with each other if they're asked to do <laughs> conflicting tasks. Yeah, that game melts my brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the main example is you'll have a color, the, word, the name of a color printed in a different color, and you ask the person, what does this word say? And it sometimes is hard to say the name that is printed when the color is different or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And so that is obviously a, an accessibility nightmare yeah. <laughs> because you're asking someone to directly engage with something that is inaccessible because it's fun that it's inaccessible. And that one was an interesting challenge too, because, um, we actually tested that with various uh, colorblind players, which was interesting in a game about color. But um, <laughs> we ended up with a palette that, um, that can work with some common types of colorblindness successfully. And you, you see that all the, all the time. I was just thinking about the game Quix, which mm -hmm. is a great roll and write game that has colors ascending from left to right. And there's a much to me, much more interesting version of that game that is available. It's a variant called Quixcomixed, where the numbers are presented in a different order, in kind of a random looking order, which makes the game have a more interesting decision space because they aren't in predictable order. But also a higher cognitive. But load. it's a much less, exactly, a much less accessible game in the sense of teaching it and having people get it right away mm -hmm. because you have this extra thing you're looking at at all times. It's a really good way of thinking about it, that if you think about a game and trying to make it challenging so people keep coming back to it, trying to figure it out, there is that inherent inaccessibility kind of built in. And we can just do what we can to minimize the unintended inaccessibility. For filler, were there decisions that you made with these kinds of topics in mind that kind of shine through in the game? Well, uh, one of them is the basic graphic design elements. Of course, the normal publishing process is that the designer comes up with a prototype and then a graphic designer and artist to take over from there. But some of the basics really need to be in place at that point. So just I, basic ideas like double coding for colorblind accessibility. All the icons have a color to them, but also a shape associated with that. Absolutely. In filler, a constant struggle was getting people to understand the difference between the ingredients that, are, that a card provides you when you're using it to make a recipe and the ingredients that are on a card that you need that are the, basically the cost of that card. So figuring out which locations that would go in to make it intuitive to the most people mm -hmm. was interesting. 
because anytime I switched it, some people would think, oh, that's great. That makes total sense to me. And I would immediately have other people lock up <laughs> with the change. So there was always, again, uh, that, that trade-off. There are other, other aspects of accessibility, like inclu- inclusion as well, of course. The players each get a, an avatar, a set of cards that represent them. And as I was talking to the publisher, um, one of the things we, you know, we agreed on immediately was to be as inclusive as possible in, in representing a, a diverse group of people. But there are only six chefs, so that can only go so far. Right. Um, so there obviously were trade-offs in, in who we could represent visually. Um, so so that, hey, it happens all the time throughout every part of that process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really like the chefs that are available because by having such a kind of wide range of characters and not just a bunch of people that all fit the same kind of mold, it almost feels like they have more personality than like four characters that are all, you know, the same background or the same, um, the same race, things like that. And, you know, when I play the game, I always want to be Martha. And it's like, I've just got this like connection to her now. And it's nice to have those kinds of feelings of, um, you know, this person, Lance, has a different feel than Martha does, even though it's it's roughly the same kind of setup. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And for the game, before we run out of time, what is your favorite part of the game, Filler? My favorite part is proving people wrong when they think they have solved the game. (laughs) (laughs) There are often people who will play the first time and say, oh, well, whoever gets the earliest card, they're just going to go first every time and win. And there are a couple more layers to to the game than that. And I like the moment when I can play against that person and notice they're always going to pick the earliest card. And so I will not take the earliest card. I'll just take the card that's worth all the points. <laughs> and they'll yep. forget that that's part of the game too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I like in any game, I like seeing those secondary tertiary layers of strategy that that you can layer on top of each other to, to see the game in a new light. Yeah, absolutely. I enjoy teaching people this game because you can teach the rules, and then they kind of slowly understand the strategy over time, including like some of the strategies of once you pick up your cards, which card are you going to take away from people? Kind of, do you remember if they still have blueberries in their hand and can make that, you know, blueberry cream horn? Or, you know, it's not just what card is best for you, but what card can you take away from somebody else? So... And I suppose my second favorite part is just remembering each episode of the Great British Bake Off that featured each dessert that makes me hungry again. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. I'm sure that was um, that was partly inspiration behind the theme. For listeners interested in getting a copy of this game, where can they find it? You'll find it in your friendly local game store. Certainly, it's in wide distribution, or other online retailers will have it. Or you can order directly from the publisher, Green Couch Games, on their website, and um, and that would be a fantastic avenue to find it as well. And if you have any trouble, you could talk to <laughs> me directly. You could find me on Twitter at Uncle John Bob U N C L E J O N B O B. 
Perfect. Well, we'll have links um, to all of that in the description. And this was a fantastic conversation. Thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. Have a good one. For more information about the topics that we discussed in this episode and the links that we just mentioned, we'll have those in the About This Episode section on our website at playabilitypod.com. And if our listeners have any questions or comments that you would like to share with us, please email us at playabilitypod at gmail.com and find us on major social media platforms as at playabilitypod. Thanks again for listening. Play with a new perspective.